Amen. You may be seated and good morning. Y'all doing well? All right, that's good. Hey, before I forget, uh, two quick things. This Thursday is National Day of Prayer. It's a day set aside where we call you know, believers everywhere across our nation to come together to pray, to pray for our nation, pray for our world. We're going to be doing it from 7.30 to 9 o'clock out at the, uh, the pavilion. So if you have opportunity, uh, even if you can't come for the whole time, just if you can come for some of it, that would be great. Uh, secondly, next Sunday night, if you like want to see the cutest thing in the entire world, uh, at 5 o'clock, I believe it is, our children's choir is going to be presenting their spring musical production. So it'll be a lot of fun. So I encourage you to do that. For those of you who have not met, my name's Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here. And uh, it's good to be back. We've been gone for a couple weeks. You know, we went through a season. I, I counted up. I, I think I was here like 16 of 17 weekends in a row, and it was, it was, I was tired, right? And, uh, and we had the opportunity, found one of those uh, cheap cruises out of LA, down to uh, Mexico for a week, and I took Tammy, and I just want you all to know, it was fabulous. It was awesome. I mean, because I had her all to myself. It was, it was just perfect, right? I didn't have to share her with anyone. Well, I shouldn't say that. One day we were having lunch there, uh, and some, um, some people came to join us from the Philippines. And when they found out Tammy was from the Philippines, I lost her for about an hour. But after that, I, I, I just, just her and me for, for, for a week, and it was wonderful. And it is, but it is good to be back. And, uh, but, but here's the thing. Um, I got back, and I began to figure out that I think I'm, I screwed something up. And so I need to take, that's why I'm on a little early this morning. Uh, I, I need to try to, to clarify, try to fix something here. So if you're a guest, by the way, we are so glad to have you, but we're going to have a little family meeting this weekend. We've been doing that uh, as Steve uh, tries to fix his, his mess. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Revelation, so if you want to turn your Bibles there. But for those of you that are part of Desert Springs, I need to talk to you for a minute. Let, and let me give you some context. So I've, I've been the pastor here for 28 years. And to me, one of the coolest things about our experience at Desert Springs has been how we have a church that has walked by faith. I mean, and uh, we, when we started, there were 55 of us, but believe God had called us together, and that faith has called us to kind of all, to all be in, right, to, to connect. So I can remember those early days uh, when, when we started. I mean, we, we, didn't, we didn't have money to pay anybody to clean the church, so we put together cleaning teams, and literally... Every family in the church, I think, was a part of a cleaning team. And we had mowing teams. And I think every, you know, so if one week you weren't there cleaning, you were probably there mowing the grass, right? And that's just the way it worked. Uh, we'd have, uh, you know, people that would run sound, sing in the choir, and then go teach Sunday school. I mean, we were just all in. It was, it was a wonderful thing. And, uh, 
you know, for those of you that are coming to pizza with the pastor tonight, or if you ever come, I get to tell some of the great stories of, of, of our history, but the heart of those stories is how God, you know, took what little we had, and then he would bless it. So I think back to uh, 1997, when we got behind financially, and and to, I mean, literally the last 30 hours of the, of the year, and we were going to close down the church, and how God brought it in. But how that worked was our, our people stepped up as much as they could and did what they could, and then God blessed it. And, and that was just a cool thing. We were all in. And then I remember when we, uh, when we moved out. So in 2003, as a church, we were praying. And again, I, I don't want to belabor these stories, but... Uh, we, we were praying about what we should do and, and we felt like God was telling us to sell the church but we had no place to go you know you talk about Israel they went out not knowing where they went that was us and we, we put the church up for sale and we sold it but then we had no place to go and then ultimately we found Litchfield Park and that God put that together but what most people don't understand is that was eight miles away think if we were going to go eight miles south of here that was my announcement today and tell hey uh in two months we're going to be down in australia mountain right some of you a couple of you would be very happy most of you would be going hey i'm looking for my next church right because that's too far everybody moved with us except one older couple who live right by the church we got them plugged into another church uh, over there but everybody moved because we couldn't have done it any other way and I think of that first year when we moved to Litchfield Park and we had just enough money in the bank uh, that if giving didn't increase that uh, we were going to be done on September 15th right we had about seven months eight months and uh, but man people all jumped in and again I remember when we bought this building in 2007 and of course at that point we knew that first year we were going to have both buildings and, and but we had to do a lot of work when we came in here so, any of you remember that like those doors back there and on the side weren't even here they were all open and so we we just had to think do some things to make a church and so we we had to raise uh we set a goal to raise an extra three hundred and fifty thousand dollars that year and uh, you know so again everybody just did what they could and, and was a part and actually running into the last two days of the year i think we were sitting right about three hundred thousand, which was so cool people had so given but and then god in a very unique way um brought in that last fifty thousand in that last uh, two days and so it was really cool so with that as a backdrop um you know i, I come back from vacation and obviously we you know, we had uh, launched the, the phase two piece. We'd had Easter, uh, which, by the way, I haven't been here since then. I, I'm not a big numbers guy, but do you all did notice that we had like our all-time high attendance, and not just our all-time high attendance, but our all-time high attendance by about 400 people on Easter? Yeah, that, that's cool. Uh, and again, I, I just done this long enough, you know, things happen, and I don't get too excited, but one of the really cool things I've been looking for all spring is we have never had on a non-Easter, non-Christmas weekend 1,700 people. And this spring, if you look, like we had like 1693, we had 1690. And I kept, oh, yeah, yeah. I finally decided to take a weekend off because, right, the weekend after Easter is low. We had over 1,700 that week. 
I got that word. I thought, God, you got a sense of humor, right? It's good. But I got home, and uh, as I was beginning to step back into things, something hit me, and it became very apparent that I've screwed something up. And that is we had launched our our Pledge 2 drive for that next building, that multi-purpose worship center. And uh, out of our entire congregation, we had asked for pledges, and we've only received 125 pledges. Now, let me put that in context. We have, in the last 12 months, uh, and and the word that I use, and and I'll explain why we use giving units, because sometimes it's a family, sometimes it's a couple, sometimes it's just an individual. It's the easiest way to explain it. It's just like giving units. We have, the last 12 months, 1,100 giving units, part of our church. 950 of those are set up in our system to give repeatedly, right? So they're there, right? You guys are such a generous church. I mean, even Easter Sunday, we raised $125,000 towards that phase two, which is so cool. Uh, we got SMI coming up. You guys always take it. You know, I know my church. And when I saw that, and then I started asking some questions, and I started realizing, Steve, you just really messed this thing up. You didn't communicate well. Now, and I've got to be honest with you. When you kind of think of yourself as this master communicator and you found out that you really screwed it up, it, uh, yeah, a little humble pie. So uh, what I'm trying to do this weekend is bring clarity. Right? So if I don't bring clarity, make sure that you, you talk to me here afterwards and I'll try to bring it. So one of, the, one of the reasons we decided with phase one and now with phase two to actually do a pledge drive, it's the first time we've done it, is this. Uh, we do not want to go into long-term debt. Right? That's, uh, we still have some. In fact, if you all have been here, you've looked at the you know, different phases of the impact project. Phase three is actually paying off the existing debt. So that's kind of one of those things that's out there because I think that will give us so much freedom to not only plant churches but help some of the churches that, we, that we've planted. So uh, that, that's our goal. So we don't want to get ahead of the Lord. One of the things we often say, we don't want to be behind, but we don't want to get ahead. I would have the tendency probably to get ahead, right? So this was the thing. And when we, we feel like with the pledges that we know that we're going to get there, we're going to start the process. And so that's what we did with, with phase one. We need to raise $3 million, and when we're there, we're, we're working. We, we got the, uh, you know, the permits and all that. So you all have been around. It's taken us almost two and a half years to get the permits. And there's still, did you notice there's still not a tractor out there? There's still not a hole in the ground. I hope, uh, my prayer is by the end of this month, that will be one of those part of our stories that we'll tell one day, but it'll be past, right? There'll be stuff out there. It's just taken forever. So when our elders came together in February, after taking time to fast to pray, we just all were the same mind that, hey, this is the time for us to move ahead into phase two. And so if you were here at the end of March, we mapped it out all there and, and talked to you, uh, you know, let you go out and see it and all of that. And then on, on Easter Sunday, we began to receive pledges. Now, a couple things. Why do a pledge? Because, again, we don't want to go in long-term debt. A pledge is nothing more than a Another way it's often called is a faith promise. 
that as you sit before the Lord and you think, hey, this is what I think I can do over the next three years over and above our regular giving. And so we're going to say that in faith. The reality is none of us knows what tomorrow holds, right? We bought this building in 2008 while we still owned another one, or 2007. If we had known 2008, we probably wouldn't have done it, right? We didn't know. God was faithful. He saw us through. But that's the whole point. None of us know. In fact, none of us know. Uh, you know, and so something changes. It, it, it just, and you can't do it, then you, you can't do it. It's not that big of a thing. On the other hand, if God blesses you more than you think he does, you want to do more, that would be okay too, right? It's just for us to have a sense of, of, of where to move forward. Secondly, some of us are still engaged in giving in phase one. In fact, Tammy and I are. We made our pledge. We haven't given it all. So when I had to think about phase two, what I had to think about was, you know, I've got to finish phase one too. So honestly, my phase two pledge was not as much as the phase one because I've got to finish that off. Some of it we won't give for a couple years. That's fine because it's not until, you know, uh, it ends in what, April of 2026. But the, but the important piece for us in leadership is to go, hey, when do we know when to move ahead? Because if we started today trying to get the, the building plans to that point, the construction plans, and the permits, we're probably still talking nine months to a year. Our concern is if we finish this and then we have to start again, we're going to probably be back in a two to three year time framework. And so that's why our elders felt like this was that time to go ahead. So I just, again, wanted to bring clarity. Here's the other thing. I know that there are some, uh, somebody was telling me last night it was a past experience thing. Others, I don't know if it's a theological thing. They're just opposed to making a pledge. They're going to give. I mean, we had 20% come in on phase one that wasn't pledged. So if you're one of those people, thank you. We appreciate you. That's all my concern is that you're all in. Um, but obviously, if you could have let us know, that would have helped, right? Because it's, it's all about that kind of a knowledge piece uh, for us to be able to know going ahead. So here's my ask. My ask is this. Would you seriously, prayerfully consider? Because I can tell you these stories of faith. What I could also do is bring up people who walk through those things that got stretched in their faith. That's why I think God asks us to do some of this stuff. That's why he asks us to plant churches. That's why he asks us to go into these things. It's, it's, it's stretching all of our faith. Would you prayerfully consider? If you pray, seriously pray, and God says, no, I don't want you to be a part, cool. I have no problem with that. But my experience is this. When we all do what we can do, then that's when God will show up at the end, Right? I don't think 11% of our church family being a part is going to get us there, right? My, my hope, my prayer is that everybody who considers Desert Spring, you know, because it's not the amount. That's not what's important. What's important is the participation and say, hey, we believe this is, this is that way to reach the community and to have those tools and be able to start using the gym as a gym for reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So would you prayerfully consider... Our first time that we are actually going to announce where we're at is on uh, Mother's Day. 
And there's lots of ways you can take a card and you can, you can do the card here. You can take this. There's a, uh, what do they call those codes there? Uh, it's been a long morning already. Morning. Yeah, uh, put that in your phone. That'll take you there. You could just go to, to the giving site uh, and you could put in your pledge. And again, that's all it is. It's a faith promise. Nobody's going to hold you. This is just to say, hey, this is what I want to believe God for, to walk in faith, to allow him to, to stretch mine. So this is, does that make sense? Does that bring clarity? Now, here's the thing. We will probably for the next three years be talking about this. What we learn with, with phase one is that in the first six to eight weeks, probably about 90% of our pledges came in. And so th this is just a really important time. So would you prayerfully consider being a part, being a part of this next story? Because the reality is someplace down the line, we're going to tell this story. And it would be so cool to say, yeah, you know what? I was there. I was a part of that. We, we stepped out in faith. All right. If you got your Bibles, we're in the message to the church at, at Pergamum. Uh, the church at Pergamum. Let's just read, let's read the passage. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum, write. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is... And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it let's talk about the church at Pergamum the name Pergamum means parchment parchment is a type of paper that was made uh, that uh, is used basically use animal skins the history of this is this Pergamum was originally founded back in the mid 500s BC uh, as they grew in power and they grew in stature, one of the things, again, you've got to remember, this is the time the Greeks are coming on the scene, so knowledge, wisdom is really important. They wanted to become known as a place of great knowledge and wisdom. So they wanted to build this incredible library, which, by the way, ultimately got to like 200,000-some-odd books uh, in that day. In the midst of that, of course, the best and the greatest library of the ancient world was in Alexandria, down in, down in Egypt. Uh, the people of Pergamum tried to pry away the librarian from the library of Alexandria to come to Pergamum. When the 
ruler of Egypt found out, he goes, there is no way you guys are going to become a better library or more not known for knowledge than we are. So he banned the sale of papyrus. Papyrus was the, the main writing thing that they had before, you know, paper and, and parchment. And so parchment, though it was known, had never been mass produced. Pergamum, because now they couldn't get papyrus and they wanted to create this great library, figured out how to mass produce parchment, which is where it got its name, uh, from the city of Pergamum, where it comes. It was also the capital of Asia. So we talked about Ephesus, which is a great city, but Ephesus was not the capital. Pergamum was. And and the reason that happened, around 130 B.C., the king of Pergamum invited the Romans in and basically gave them that as their headquarters. So for over 250 years, as Rome came to power uh, in, in the ancient world, Pergamum then was set up to be the capital. It's a beautiful place. If you ever get a chance to go, really the old city of Pergamum sits up on that hill and it has an incredible overlook. So if you overlook the, the land of of what is Turkey now is absolutely gorgeous. You look this way and that. You also see quite a bit of the ruins. And what you got to remember then is all of those stones, all of that marble had to be brought up onto the top of that hill. And so you can begin to imagine the massive amount of labor that was there. This is the amphitheater, just to give you some sense of the size and the scope of the city back in that time. It's absolutely huge. Beautiful city. But it, was, it had in it a lot of temples, right? There's a huge temple to Zeus, different gods, but it was also the center for emperor worship. And I think Trevor dealt with this a, a couple weekends ago. Emperor worship uh, really came with Caesar Augustus, and it was loyalty to, to Rome, but also it was the worship of the Caesar. And, and what it demanded was that every subject come once a year, bring a pinch of incense, throw it on the altar, and say, Jesus, or, Caesar is Lord. Now, you can imagine for somebody who followed and worshipped Zeus or Artemis or whatever, that was no big thing. But for a Christian, can you go throw incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord? No. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So that becomes a problem. Pergamum was kind of the center of that in Asia Minor. In fact, they ended up having three temples that were actually built for the worship of Caesar. And so this is a, it's a place where, as we're going to see, they faced a lot of persecution. The second thing we see is this. The one who holds the sharp two-edged sword says this. So who's the speaker? If you've not been with this, the description of the speaker always goes back to chapter 1 because it's a description of Christ. So if you go back to verse 16, you see this. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun sitting in the strength. The two-edged sword identifies this as Jesus as the one speaking to the church. The two-edged sword is not a big sword, not used in, you know, you would think of the soldiers moving forward. The two-edged sword was a Roman sword. It was, 
it was used by soldiers, but it was used only in hand-to-hand combat. So it was kept there in, in their uh, in their waistband, and it was used not to slash, but but basically to pierce, to 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 thrust into someone it also had the idea it could be used because it was made for precision like for doctors almost like the surgical strike so when you think about how jesus is the one with the sharp two-edged sword he is the one who's going to make the correct evaluation here of the churches we're also reminded that god's word cuts two ways it cuts towards blessing and it cuts towards curse so it speaks truth and if you repent then there is forgiveness if you don't listen it now brings knowledge which brings greater condemnation you get it it cuts both ways if you listen it'll bring blessing in your life if you disobey it'll it'll bring destruction god's word is that sharp two-edged sword and then he gives then in verse 13 the condemnation he's a commendation he says this i know where you dwell where satan's throne is and you hold fast my name did not deny my faith even the days of antipas my witness my faithful one who was killed among you where satan dwells so the commendation the good news is listen you have remained faithful in a difficult place He calls it twice the place where Satan dwells. Now, why? That's a tough question. What we think is is the reason and what was going on is it could have been one of their main gods there, Asclepius, is the one who is kind of the god of medicine. The the imagery was God holding a snake. And they have a lot of like the hot springs around there. And so it was a place of a lot of medicine. Uh, and so people would come. But in the worship of this God, what they did was they filled the temple with non poisonous snakes. And so some people thought, well, maybe that's where, you know, thinking this. this the throne of satan where satan dwells because if you went and you fed these snakes it was like you were feeding their god and it would bring blessing or even better yet if you were sick and you slept in the temple overnight and a snake touched you it would heal you it would have for me because i had just gone right on up to heaven right you know it's just like "Ah, that would have been it for me um so some think that that's why he talks about it. Others go, no, it wasn't so much that. It was the temple of Zeus. I mean, the temple of Zeus was incredible. In fact, the altar, just the altar of the temple of Zeus um, was something like 200 uh, or 120 feet long by about 110 feet. The, the uh, heart of the altar in the middle is 18 feet high. So magnificent. It was actually taken to Berlin, Germany years ago. Uh, So maybe it was the Temple of Zeus. And others go, no, it's because this is the this is the center of Caesar worship. And the answer is we don't know exactly why, but what we do know is the darkness that is there. Uh, it It was a difficult place. And the whole point is the commendation is 
you have faced persecution, you have faced the threat of death, but you have not denied my name. And he talks about Antipas. Antipas, historically, was a was someone who was killed under the reign of Domination, which, of course, would put it into the 90s AD. And we're not exactly sure, but we think it was this idea that he would not take the incense and throw on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. So what Domination had him do was he was put into a brass bowl, and then he was cooked alive. Now think about it. You and I live in a culture that is growing more and more hostile to Christians. Would we pretty much all agree on that? I mean, we see people that, you know, uh, won't give in to some of the cultural things and they're being sued, right? They're being taken to court. Let's face it, a lot of us have thought, you know, I've thought as a pastor, right? We're going to speak truth, right? Does that mean someday I'll go to jail? They, your, your, your mind goes there, right? You, you deal with that. Think about the Christians there. They just cooked this guy alive in a brass bowl. How far is the emperor going to push this? Am I next? Because I too cannot take incense and throw it on the altar and say Caesar's Lord. And yet in the midst of that, they didn't, they didn't walk away. They didn't turn their back. They didn't uh, compromise. And he says, listen, I know that where you live, it's difficult. Right? He knew. When you, remember, when you and I are going through difficult times, Jesus knows where we live today, right? He knows what's happening in our culture. His commendation is, listen, you have not denied my name. Such an important thing. But now we have the condemnation, verse 14. But... But I have a few things against you because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. The church tolerated people in their church who taught and promoted this air that friendship with the world is okay. So let me take a step back. Do you, when it talks about Balaam, right? Are you all familiar with the story? It's in Numbers, 22 to 25 if you want to go read it. Children of Israel are on their way to, to the land of Israel. They're over on the east side. They already conquered Bashan. God had given them that. They're now coming to Moab. The king of Moab was a guy by the name of Balak. Balak did not, he wanted, he knew he was in trouble, so he wanted someone to curse the children of Israel. So he found a prophet of God by the name of Balaam, and he brought Balaam, offered him all of this money, all of these things, if he would put a curse on the children of Israel. Well, Balaam actually was tied into the true God. And so they make their sacrifice, he's standing on the hill. God will not let him curse the children of Israel. In fact, he puts a blessing on it. Balak goes, hey, maybe if you saw him from a different area. So then they go over there and they make other sacrifices. And again, God would not let Balaam curse the children of Israel. He ends up blessing them. Balak's kind of hard-headed. He does it a third time. So they get three blessings, no curses. What ends up happening, though, 
And this is in Numbers 31. Moses tells us the backside of the story. Balaam basically tells Balak, I cannot curse them. They're God's people. But I can tell you, I can tell you how to destroy them, and I can tell you how to get them out from under God's blessing. Basically, Ingram version, parties, women. Parties, right? Bring them to your feast that you have for your, your false gods. They'll start to worship your God. That will remove God's blessing. Beautiful young ladies, let them begin to intermarry. They won't attack you. In the Bible, it's called the sin of Peor. 24,000 Israelites died because of God's judgment, because they began to intermarry. They began to worship those gods. The, the sin was friendship with the world. Hey, we want to be friendly with these people. We want to intermarry with. And God said, no, 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 no. They're going to lead you astray. And that's, I couldn't help but think of what James tells us in James 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Hostility. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Folk, as a believer in Jesus, we are in this world, but we are not to be of this world. We are here to be salt. We're here to be light. We're here to be ambassadors for Jesus, right? We're squeezed into his mold so that people see Jesus through us. What the world is trying to do, though, is the world is trying to get us to buy into its philosophy. It's trying to get us to live by the same motivations. It's trying to squeeze us into its mold. And the moment that we start doing that, it's a problem. Our allegiance is pulled away from Jesus. In fact, he adds to it there in verse 15. So you also have some of the same, in the same way, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about them back in chapter 2. I, I, I won't belabor that, but Nicholas, as best we understand, was one of those seven deacons who was uh, appointed in Acts chapter 6. And he eventually went off the rails and basically said, as a Christian, you can just live however you want. You can do whatever you, you want to do. And he had a whole sect that followed him. Folk, we are in this world, yes. They lived in the throne of Satan, right? The, the home of Satan, that's what he says. But his whole point was, but you live differently. That's what we are called to do. This world is not our home. When you think of the Nicolaitans, I shared this with you before. I love Clement of Alexander. They abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats. Does that not sound like our culture today? But he's talking about a Christian sect leading a life of self-indulgence. And, and, and so what we're reminded of here, because his whole point is, you, hold, you, you have those who hold the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, you have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We are reminded here of the importance of filling our hearts and our minds with sound Bible teaching. Because here's the reality, folks. The Word of God, as that sharp two-edged sword, for all of us, cuts sometimes against stuff that we want. That our flesh says, hey, that's what we need. And the reality of our life today is, if you go on YouTube, you can find a preacher who's going to tell you 
that that thing that you want to be okay, that God's word forbids, that it's okay. And they will explain it away. That's the culture that we live in. And people follow after their teaching to try to, to take the word of God and make it fit. And his condemnation is, is you, you let those who teach that stay and they're leading people astray. Man, the importance of sound doctrine, that we walk in truth. We're also reminded of the importance of church discipline. You think, church discipline? What's that? Yeah. Church discipline is, we, we talk all the time about the, the importance of connecting with one another, right? Having community. And the whole purpose of us being engaged with one another is we live in this world that's trying to distract us, this world that's trying to pull us away, this world which is trying to, to get us to think wrongly. And so we have brothers and sisters in our life who speak truth, and they speak truth in love, and we speak truth in love to them. And there's a protection in that. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 6, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourselves so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You know, today, what I see in our churches, in America, is this. We're railing on what the world's doing. Did you notice he didn't complain to them about they live in a place of Satan? The culture was not Jesus' concern. What the concern was, was the holiness inside the church. And we get so upset about what's going on out there, and yet we, we, we tolerate, we're not engaged with one another in speaking truth and speaking truth in love, right? This is not a judgmental, condemning spirit. This is gentleness. This is out of love, but we protect one another. We speak truth to one another. And that they weren't doing. And instead of being squeezed into the image of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, they were being squeezed into the image of the world by their culture. We're called to live in this world, but not be of it. We're called to live differently. We're called to be salt and light in a dark place. And quite honestly, the culture around us is not our concern. What our concern is, is our brothers and sisters in Christ and walking in truth and being that salt in life. So his command is this. His command's pretty simple. Verse 16, therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. What does repent mean? Repent means a change of mind, right? We, we gotta see we're believing lies, that we're not, we're not walking in God's truth. We, we gotta agree with God that his way is best. And so it leads to a change of, of behavior. And here's the thing. Repentance is the remedy for our guilt of of walking in false doctrine or tolerating or living sin. You know, we so often talk about the gospel. And for some, I think their, their idea of the gospel is maybe a little too narrow, right? And, and 
especially in a church like ours, because we want to be about the gospel. We want to tell people how Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, rose from the dead, conquered death, offers eternal life to everyone that will believe in him. That is the heart of the gospel. But as a Christian... If I am living the heart of the gospel, then part of that that is playing itself out in my life daily ought to be to live in this spirit of repentance. That I realize that God is at work in my heart and in my life to make me more like Jesus. And so his word, my brothers and sisters of Christ are all going to be speaking truth and there are going to be those moments when I'm going to say, hey, I'm not... I've not been living in alignment with God's plan for my life here, and so I need to repent. Folk, if you're a believer in Jesus, and you're not living a life where you are periodically, between you and Jesus, having to repent of something, you're not living the gospel. The gospel is a heart of humility. The gospel is a heart of understanding that God is at work in me. And I'm not perfect yet, right? One day I will be when I'm home. But he's at work in me, and so it's, it's a heart of, of, of humility and responding. And that's what he calls us to. It's also a remedy for, for our ungodly tolerance. You know, this idea that somehow... Uh, you know, we have to be, we, we have to be tolerant. Well, y- yeah, the world, right? Because the world is, is not our concern, right? And, and so how they're going to live, they're going to live. But within the church, we're called to speak truth and love. We're called to encourage one another, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's why we need each other so very much. And when we don't do it, there's bad consequence couldn't help but think of that passage in 1 Corinthians 5 you remember there's Corinth right very very godless pagan society very sensual society there's this church in the middle of it and one of the guys in the church is having an immoral Relationship with his stepmom is the best we can understand. And instead of speaking truth, the church is tolerating it, right? So Paul speaks up. He says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That might be considered strong in some circles. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Folk, when we look, when we look at America and we look at how we have lost as the church of Jesus Christ our testimony. Does that not make sense that we have not stood, not for what's going on outside, but what's going on inside and spoke for truth and righteousness and holiness? By the way, cool story, you get into 2 Corinthians and it appears that this man, because the church responded to Paul and they begin to do what they needed to do as brothers and sisters in Christ, 
and that man repented. That's what it's all about. Now the consequences, and I gotta hurry. In fact, I'm supposed to be done. He says, or else I will come, I'm coming quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now think about this. I will make war against them. Who's the them? He's not talking about the people Pergamum. He's talking about the people in the church that are living in air. You see, there's a real reality of discipline and judgment within within the body of Christ. We looked at it in the book of Hebrews. Whom the Lord loves, he's going to discipline. He scourges every son. His whole point, I'm coming quickly, is not about his second coming. His whole point here is about judgment, right? I'm going to come, I'm going to discipline. And sometimes, you, you know how it is. Sometimes, you know, when we're walking in sin, God takes time. And other times, it's like we just step across the line and boom. And how many times in my life is like, God, I see other people do this, they get away, man. I do it once, man, and it's like you, you just jump on me. And then I watch how it plays out over the next five years, and I'm so thankful that he didn't let me go down that road. The promise is this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. The promise here, and we've talked about who's the overcomer. I believe he's talking to all believers here because we overcome in Christ. His promise is the eternal satisfaction we have in Jesus. I've got a manna, right? So, so why, why does our culture do what it do, does? Why today is our culture pushing into things that 20 years ago nobody would have thought was right? Everybody would have thought was perverse, but today we're trying to make, why? Well, because there's, there's something in their soul and they're looking for it. And they're looking for it in drugs and they're looking for it in alcohol and they're looking for it in sex and they're looking for it and there's all these addictions that are going on because they're looking for the satisfaction that their heart is craving for sadly in all the wrong places and the reminder is is that for those of us that know Jesus we have the one who is the only one who can truly satisfy our soul he is the manna from heaven he is the fountain of living water and everything that our soul needs and desires is not only is found in him here but it is found in him for all of eternity full and total satisfaction we get to eat of the man of heaven and then he talks about the white stone and historically they had lots of athletic games you know we know the olympics but there was lots of those type of athletic games and to those who who won to those who ran really really well they were given a white stone with their name on it that stone was in essence their ticket to into the, the feast, the banquets, all of the parties. They were maybe new to town. Nobody knew them, but they had run. They had run well. They had the white stone. It was in as a reminder that all that God has for us in glory, man, it's, it's ours. That new name is not new in, in, in uh, as in, you know, it's not going to be Steve anymore. It's just, it's, it's new in quality because as a child of God, all the promises that he has. So warning, friendship with the world. Man, we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of it.
We're called to live in holiness, to follow after Jesus. Father,